So hi, Bruno. Welcome back. Hi, Adam. Thanks for having me again in yeah. these pandemic times. Yeah. So last time we already, you know, clarified uh, what was your first computer and how you got to programming. So and today we have to talk more seriously because um, John Klingen was also my podcast and he already mentioned that you actually, you really love YAML, right? I do love YAML, yes. It's the most beautiful thing in the computer science space. Mm -hmm. It is a technology that allows people to see white spaces because, mm -hmm. you know, the more you edit YAML files, the better you are get at actually seeing white spaces. You can you can count automatically in your brain. It just happens because you are so afraid of messing up in runtime. So you make sure those white spaces are counted by hand. Um, I tried to convince John that uh, you are actually not serious about that. And I said, this is probably a joke. And see, no, no, this, this is serious. I, I cannot believe it. And... Uh, and uh, I think it is uh, a mix, right? Uh, no, uh, it's uh, it's it's pure sarcastic love. Yeah. <laughs> um, what I have to admit, I was actually not able to edit YAML at all. So what I did, I used uh, JSON uh, and then converted always JSON to YAML. But mm -hmm. the recent, in the recent three weeks, I managed to edit YAML three times without any errors and once from scratch. And because it was so hard in the past, I have to admit, I enjoyed it a bit because, you know, I, I did some tweaks and I got, you know, with the dash that is actually an array. So I understood this and, and, and I formatted the text without any help from Visual Studio Code, just by taps and it worked. So I submitted to, to um, Kubernetes or OpenShift and it worked. Uh -huh. And this was like, you know, Back then, if you try to edit deployment descriptors without XDocLet, this was the, the same enjoyment, you know, if you just had VI and uh, two Macs of deployment descriptors and it worked. So um, so I say, okay, uh, so, uh, it was, yeah, nice feeling. I, but, I do have to ask you, mm -hmm. how, how did you manage to get a YAML from scratch to work? Without any IDE support, did you did you format it? Did you format the file manually? Oh, were you like copy? Were you? The question is, did you type character by character, or do you like um, copy and paste it from here and there? Yeah, I have to admit, um, I, I I I transformed the file. So it was uh, there were route services deployment build configs and config maps, and what I did, I created from that a template. So I've wrapped that. But it's, yeah, but this was a, a ser thing, serious right? transformation, I would say. Yeah, that's, but that's, that's the thing. Yeah, YAML, YAML is fine when it's presented for you to read. Yes. And, 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 and that's it. But for, for writing, for maintaining, for tweaking, for editing for applying changes and even merging changes to a yaml file those things are painful yes and mostly because of the white space hell um the second issue is the schema support there's no schema support you have to use a json schema use some tools to validate on top of a json schema in the yaml file you don't 
you cannot specify inside the YAML file what is the JSON schema that you want to validate against. There's no standard property in the YAML mm -hmm. file for that. You can yeah. only say API version, which yeah. is a custom property that people put whatever they want. So, so YAML is fine for reading, for printing data. But honestly, so many formats are fine for doing that. I mean, CSV is great for reading. Just like a spreadsheet, at the end of the day, you download the CSV file with your, of your configuration, and you can see on Excel. Great. But, you know, I would... I, 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 the only thing I hate about YAML is the thing about editing YAML files. Um, yeah, but this, the problem with IDE, me... I have to do it all the time. Yeah. You know? <laughs> yeah. Well, so when 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 I, when people ask me, oh, but YAML is so easy to write. Well, YAML is it's not, it's not a YAML that is easy to write. It's the specific file format of YAML configuration file that you are using that may be easy to write because you are already used to it. Mm -hmm. For example, Kubernetes deployment files. Yeah. Some people already know how uh, the schema in their heads. Right, they they already have already memorized much of the uh, major configuration properties of a deployment file. What I'm also so, curious, what I'm also curious, uh, people are arguing that in the YAML uh, is very important to have comments, and I have to say, I never saw a comment in the YAML, almost never. So uh, what I saw, saw in the Kubernetes, there there was never a commented YAML file. So I would say, okay, what's the point? Why are they people just not using JSON? I, I'm just curious, you know. Yeah, well, JSON does not have. Comment support. Yeah, right? you have to use some some invalid property to write a comment. The other issue with JSON is also the schema. You cannot specify inside the JSON. There's no standard way of telling inside a JSON file what is the schema for yeah. that JSON yeah. file, right? So those, those are the problems. And and back to the IDE, the other issue that I find is you have to have a specific plugin or extension for a particular type of YAML file or JSON file, uh, or maybe there are there are some extensions that allow you to map manually, oh, this file name pattern maps to this schema. And then the IDE may be able to uh, help you out, but it's not perfect. So that's my complaint to YAML is this, to compose YAML files, is a pain in the butt because the tooling support is far away from where XML is, yeah. and mostly because of lack of schema support, proper schema support in those um, um, configuration files. And I also now, what, what, I, what I remember was there was another problem with help where the schema is. What what uh, I had a problem with uh, types. Uh, this was a uh, um, oh yeah yeah there was uh, boolean uh, types in MR. Yeah. Something like a string was interpreted something else, and it was really, you know, hard to find error. But um, I just, I just thought, you know, you really like YAML, and I thought the discussion is going to be more interesting than this. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, but um, back to our episode twenty nine. So I think since our twenty ninth episode, I'm really referring to uh, runtimes and not servers. So this was like uh, we had okay. a, we had an interesting discussion about you know runtime servers and I thought a lot about that and I think uh, things like you know Quarkus or Helidon they are true runtimes because there's only one thing which they are shipping with and uh, even the Whitefly Payaras and Open Liberties I, I never shipped you know 
several several deployments in one server. So for me now they're they, they're actually servers, but uh, actually run times because the server part is not used widely anymore. So this was a interesting discussion we had, and uh, also about the serverless. So um, yeah, what you're doing? What are you doing these days? At uh, still, so you you are uh, your your title changed, right? I don't know whether it's good or bad. I it is it is good but frightening at the same time for me personally okay um, yes uh, last year last year we completed the acquisition of j clarity uh, a company that uh, was formed by martin verberg who mm -hmm. leads the london java community um user group mm -hmm. and a couple other gentlemen in the java ecosystem and the java community like uh, uh, kirk pepperdine john mm -hmm. oliver uh and george adams mm -hmm. and um uh, some of these folks also lead the Adoptive NGDK project, which Microsoft also sponsors since 2018. So once we completed the acquisition last year, uh, a new Java engineering group was formed at Microsoft, and I joined that team as a product manager um, um, to help um, establish the, the usage of Java at Microsoft internally and also to help our uh, both internal customers and external customers on how to optimize Java workloads, especially in cloud environments. And we are leveraging some of those JClarity tools that were acquired. We continue to work with Adopt OpenJDK, and we are collaborating with the OpenJDK project, uh, sending contributions. We sent, uh, since um, November, December last year, we've sent about, 12 patches, uh, I believe, 12 patches to OpenJDK project. Um, and we continue to do so. We are, uh, we are doing um, a lot of work, a lot of internal work and in, in finding ways that OpenJDK can be enhanced, can be uh, improved, uh, whether it's by fixing bugs that are impacting our internal usage of Java or uh, might impact um, customers running Java on Azure. So that's the, uh, the that's the, the, the purpose of the Java engineering group at Microsoft, um, uh, it's a, it's a large group and it's a, it's a large, we have a large usage of Java and Microsoft. People don't realize we have, I believe we have, well, I cannot say right now the actual number, but I can safely say that we have thousands of Java developers working on Microsoft as employees, like full-time employees, Java developers. And uh, across all Microsoft. Is it more and than Oracle? Have... <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> maybe, maybe, maybe we have more Java developers than Oracle has lawyers. Maybe, <laughs> maybe. Okay. I don't know. Uh, but, but just to make sure, I have friends at Oracle, both in the engineering side and in the legal side. I have uh, friends in the legal team at Oracle. Um, so... Internal use of Java at Microsoft is interesting. We have a few things that I can definitely talk about. One is uh, Minecraft. People forget about Minecraft sometimes. Mm -hmm. Minecraft has both the client Java edition. Microsoft is investing in other platforms and other uh, editions of Minecraft. They uh, recently they released a, a, platform, a version of Minecraft not written in Java and a new a new runtime, um, 
with support for better modern uh, graphic cards. So mm-hmm. you you actually have like the water in in Minecraft is mm-hmm. sleek. It's like a, 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 a an Axe like Turismo quality, mm-hmm. and uh, it it is very awesome. But the Java edition is still very popular because it allows modifications. It allows mods to be mm-hmm. developed and uh, added to a Minecraft server that people can run themselves. Wait a second. So, uh, was My- uh, Minecraft cross-compiled, or or you know how it happened? What they did? I, I think it was. I think it was developed from this from scratch. Wow. The new okay. version. Okay. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. I maybe C maybe a combination of C okay. and C sharp. I, I I don't know the details, but mm-hmm. it's it's uh, what I know is it's not Java. Okay, um, we, which is fine because they are able to use the uh, the knowledge of uh, uh, a team that builds games mm-hmm. in in different uh, with different platforms, different runtimes, and leverage the. Uh, the features of the modern new graphic cards. Yeah, sure. So, but if you if you download uh, Minecraft from the regular page, it's still Java, or right? You have to go to the Minecraft website, yeah. and then you're gonna see the options. You okay. have this option, that option, and then there's a uh, the Java option, the Java edition option. Because um, so so we we still run servers at Microsoft Minecraft servers with the Java version. So you can, if you download Minecraft and you say, I want to connect to a public server, you're going to see the Microsoft servers and those are running Java mm-hmm. uh, in our data centers. Um, another use of Java at Microsoft that's big is uh, Yammer, Yammer.com. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's, a, it's a communication tool that Microsoft acquired years ago. And mm-hmm. the whole backend is, is, is implemented in Java and they uh, even use the Drop Wizard framework. I'm, I'm sure you were familiar with that. Yeah. Um, the original creators of Yammer also were, I, I think, were also the creators of Drop Wizard. So uh, there's uh, some history over there. Um, finally, one of the biggest uh, uh, internal customers or internal use of Java is LinkedIn. So whenever you are looking for a job, whenever you're looking for uh, messages on LinkedIn from recruiters, whenever you are searching for your friends and colleagues, all that backend is implemented in Java. Uh, LinkedIn is is massive, and people also forget sometimes that LinkedIn was the original creator of Kafka, yeah. and um, um, some other Apache projects. LinkedIn also leads the development. So there was a Voldemort, again, right? Use... Voldemort and the I think the Cassandra. Yes, yes, mm-hmm. correct. So the use the, the use of Java and Microsoft is big. Now I mentioned I mentioned mostly companies that Microsoft acquired, right? But on the Azure cloud, some services were developed from scratch, and without Java, they wouldn't exist. And those are mostly the big data services, Azure HD Insight, which deploys and runs Apache Spark, Apache Hadoop, um, Azure Synapse, which is a service similar to Google BigQuery, mm-hmm. so also deploys um, several JVMs to make it work. So, you know, use of Java and Microsoft is big. And finally, I don't want to get into the non-technical debate, but uh, Microsoft is uh, going to sell an Android phone um, uh, coming soon. I think the name is Android Duo. So it's a, it's a dual uh, uh, display okay. um, cell phone. 
And it's quite nice. You know, we have a big screen and you can ha have uh, multiple Android applications running at the same time. And because it's Android, you write Java code, you write Kotlin code. If you talk to Gluon, you can deploy JavaFX applications on Android. So it's quite a nice platform. And uh, Microsoft is uh, growing on that space as well. So to summarize, the usage of Java at Microsoft is big. And we depend on the technology, and that's why we have a Java engineering group to make the platform continue to be successful and contribute back based on internal use that usage that we have in a way that um, helps both uh, ourselves, our customers, but also the Java community. So we are we are in this together. And you are the principal product manager for Java. So what's what's your responsibility then? Um, for now, it's really uh, number one to to see and tell that story, Java at Microsoft. Um, second is to help with the uh, with Martin's team in um, uh, helping with these OpenJDK collaborations and contributions, um, helping with um, connecting and working with our partners like Oracle, Red Hat, and Pivotal. And also, we are exploring uh, performance analysis tools that could help developers um, enhance their their applications to either make their applications better uh, or, at the very least, save costs, even in the cloud space. So we are, in a way, we are working on tools and we are working on things that will help our customers spend less money in the cloud. Which yeah. That sounds counterproductive, but it's actually important because yeah. we want to make sure that customers don't waste their money. Because Sun Microsystems worked all the time on that, right? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah. Um, um, yeah. Nice. Uh, the only thing which uh, which is interesting, so your your previous title was Asia DevRel, and now you are principal product manager for Java. So if you ask you know, a young guy what is more sexy, uh, uh, probably they, they would say Azure DevRel is a nicer title than a Java Principal Manager, you know? You know, funny thing, the only time I actually had a DevRel full-time job was here at Microsoft. Okay. All the other jobs I had in the past, all the time before I joined Microsoft, I, I joined Microsoft early 2018. All my professional career before that, I never actually had a DevRel job role. It was always product management or software developer or software architect or lead or whatever. Never DevRel per se. So DevRel, DevRel, it's like a, sometimes it's like a, another thing that people can also do, whether they have the DevRel job or not. So you do it. And if your boss, if your company, if your manager is cool with it, you go and do it, right? And you try to balance that with the actual work that you need to do. Mm -hmm. Sometimes it's mutually beneficial for okay. yourself, individually, and the company. And that was my case before Microsoft. And that is now my case in this new team at, at, uh, here in the Java Engineering Group. Um, I do this PM work, but I also kind of do this DevRel work. Yeah. So it's fun. It's I like it. Okay, uh, regardless, DevRel. So let's say um, I'm Java developer and I would like to start with uh, Microsoft Asia. So uh, what is actually to do? Do I have, you know, to create an account uh, or, or, you know, how to start with your stuff? Let's say I have a small micro profile service. Let's say this is more realistic and I would like to push something to Kubernetes. So Right. So yeah. um, there are 
there are several ways of deploying Java applications in any cloud. You you pick your cloud of choice, and yeah. you're gonna find at least five different services that can run Java workloads in in any cloud. Yeah. Um, on Azure, we can go with the most uh, um, application hosting service. It's a standalone, self-contained, all your dependencies, uh, uh, Java application like Spring Boot or MicroProfile Quarkus or uh, Micronaut or Drop Wizard or whatever that you just do Java minus jar and you have your application up and running. Uh, Azure App Service is good for that. You deploy your jar and you say, you know, for maybe you add some Java JVM parameters on how much memory you want. You select the shape size of your compute power, and you're done. It will expose your service in, at a certain port number that you also specify, and your application is up and running with a load uh, a load ma a load balancer, uh, maybe storage, uh, maybe uh, custom DNS that you can set, and monitoring that also comes out of the box, mm -hmm. which is quite nice. You, do, you don't do anything. Just create a new application, deploy your file, and run. We do have on the same so service. So be, 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 before I start, I have to decide which JDK to choose. So, you, so you provide me a, a predefined platform. We provide. We provide a. Yeah, we provide a. By default, we use our partnership with Azul Systems, and you get Azul JDK, uh, which is commercially supported for free as this, part of your subscription with Microsoft. Just the Zulu one. And. Right? It's the Zulu one. It's not, it, it is based on the Zulu community edition, but it's actually a, a, a distribution that's specific for Azure that may contain patches and fixes uh, that may not still available on the community edition mm -hmm. uh, for a certain period of time. It's, it's all about commercial support. It's all about uh, handling uh, uh, customer escalations as fast as possible. So if you have a problem, you raise, you open a support ticket, it gets fixed, gets shipped, and then later on it, it, it goes to uh, the community edition or upstream. And this is called so, Azure Service, right? Java Azure Service. This is the name of the of the service. It's called uh, Azure Microsoft Azure App Service. App Service, okay. So I can deploy whatever whatever executable jar I like. I can just yes. FT SCP yes. to your cloud and and yeah, you can uh, you can use a Maven plugin. Uh, you can deploy from the IDE. Uh, mm -hmm. We have plugins for Eclipse and IntelliJ. You can mm -hmm. also just right-click and publish mm -hmm. um, the Maven plugin. And we also have an Azure CLI yeah. that can be used for automated deployments uh, mm -hmm. quite nicely. So um, um, I always make, uh, I always, you know, ask uh, uh, attendees or colleagues or whoever, do you actually know any use case for Fed jars or Uber jars? Because, you know, for me, it doesn't make any sense. But this could be one, you know, if you have some... Dedicated service for me is like bare metal service. So actually, for me, it looks like you know a dedicated machine with pre-installed Java, so I can push the jar and and start it right. Yeah, and you can you can optimize later once you create the environment on app service. You can customize it. You can deploy your your dependencies, and then you just deploy your your application. Okay. So those dependencies will stay inside the storage. And then you just upload the actual business application, right? Which is uh, perfect like, for I, I, Which is well, I would say, which is perfect for any Java framework these days. That because because uploading a fat jar to the cloud, one hundred megabytes, is not cool, right? No. 
You don't. People shouldn't be doing that anymore. Yeah, but hell, you don't. Quark was doing this uh, out of the box, so usually you have no like a. Thin, oh yeah, yeah. Yeah. So you can yeah, have absolutely. this thin jar and the lip. You can push lip once, and then you know the thin jar, just uh, if something changes. Yeah. So it's Docker-like experience, I would say. Yeah, and it's still on app service. The other way that you can deploy uh, applications is doing uh, using web applications, Tomcat-based web applications. Okay. You just deploy a wire file. Mm-hmm. And we set up Tomcat for you. Okay. So, so app service is quite nice for especially uh, young developers or new developers experimenting cloud services. You just build your jar or your war file, and you just deploy, and it's it's up and running. Um, but but why you young to... developers? I mean, uh, if you have you know uh, mid range business and you would like to run you know for instances just fine. oh uh, yeah. I... I, I, I'm, I'm, oh, absolutely. I'm not limiting the, the service to uh, particular use cases. I'm just saying that across all the possible ways of deploying Java workloads on Azure, app service is, is the ideal one for people who are exploring and learning about cloud-based uh, uh, development or cloud-based deployments. Mm-hmm. So you don't want a young developer writing YAML file, do you, Adam? Uh, like... No, uh, it's actually <laughs> after a few weeks, it's fine, right? It's fun, but um, yeah. So that's that's my point, right? You you want to make it as uh, easy as possible. Mm-hmm. Um, we also have a serverless serverless uh, service for Azure Functions. Mm-hmm. You write a Java class, mm-hmm. you put some annotations, and you deploy a jar file. That jar file can be very small with just business logic. Um, right now, today, if you want to use some library, some dependency on your Azure function you have to pack that in your deployment file. So there's no way today to uh, set your dependencies. For example, commons, Apache commons, or whatever yep. util library that you could, you want to use, there's no way today to put that on Azure Functions storage or somehow mm-hmm. and then uh, reuse that. You have to pack in the zip file and re-upload all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's still it's still uh, quite nice because most of the time what you really want to do is just process some business logic mm-hmm. in your Azure function and send the data, get the data somewhere and send ba- back to some other point, right? Yeah, um, from, from the architectural and... perspective, so the uh, Azure functions were for me more or less like message-driven beans, you know, they are listening for a yes. queue or whatever, like integration point. But I wouldn't correct. I, I would not use, you know, functions for as a, as a general uh, programming model. It's just yeah, some people some people like to build web applications using Azure Functions or serverless functions uh, with HTTP triggers, HTTP endpoints. But my opinion is that's a very nice way to demonstrate serverless, but it's not the actual useful use case. What you really want to use it for is for messaging, for integration, for uh, API consumption, perhaps yeah. something like yeah. that. Yeah. Not not as an entry point for a web application for a customer. Um, and we have Java 11 support coming out this year on Azure Functions. Mm-hmm. So today we use Java 8, okay. uh, but we are we are going to add Java 11 support uh, soon. Um, the other services that we have are m- on both ends, uh, more like infrastructure, compute, and then we have one that is more platform as a service, similar to Azure App Service but specifically for Java applications. So let me talk about the infrastructure first. Yeah. On the infrastructure, you have VMs, create yeah. a VM, log in, yeah. and do whatever you want. We have, uh, and we have two container, container-based container services. One is Azure Container Instances, which is 
similar to the Azure Compute VM service, mm-hmm. you, you, you give a, a Docker image and you run a container, mm-hmm. and that's it. In the VM world, you might have a VM template and you start VM, right? Mm-hmm. In Azure Container Instance, you give a Docker image and you create a, a, doc, a Docker Container Instance, and uh, you don't scale. You don't. Uh, there, there's no load balancer. There's no orchestration. Nothing. It's just like here's my Docker image. Create a container and give me an IP address or a URL to access that service running in that inside that container. Okay, and that's it. Which is actually great for people who want to develop Docker images and just deploy a Docker image. Not orchest- no orchestration. No nothing. Just give me that application running. Um, and then we have Kubernetes, Azure Kubernetes. Wait a service, second. But could I start start two images of the same instance? There's really no no way to load balance that because you know. No, you can. What you can do is create on Azure Container Instances service. What you can do is have a container group. Yeah. So you can have inside a container group, you can have multiple containers, all of them based on different uh, images. Mm-hmm. And one of them is the only one that is publicly serving ah. uh, the internet. Okay. So, for example, you can have a small application. You have the front end, you have the back end, you have the database, all running like three containers. Mm-hmm. Very basic stuff. Yeah. And it's charged by the uh, second or by the hour, something like that. Yeah. So it's 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 the price is very similar to the VM price because it's also calculated based on the amount of memory and CPU that you allocate for the containers. Mm-hmm. So it's quite, it's quite nice and uh, um, easy to use. You deploy the Docker image and then you say ACI, run this image, mm-hmm. boom, done. Now, if you do want scalability, orchestration, security, and uh, whatnot, and YAML files, then you go to Azure Kubernetes service. Yeah. Then you have the full-fledged Kubernetes experience. You get your Kubernetes cluster from your command line using kubectl, yeah. and you are good to go. Yeah. Uh, and it's very, uh, everything very automated, um, upgrading Kubernetes versions. Uh, all the Linux distributions inside are patched and maintained by Microsoft, just like you would expect from a managed Kubernetes service. Um, we, we, we did one thing recently. If you deploy a Java application to Azure Kubernetes instances and also Azure Container instances, we are able to monitor the JVM out of the box for you without you having to make any changes to your container, to your JVM, to your application or dependencies or nothing. We we inject a Java agent mm-hmm. that will automatically monitor that JVM and send the data back to Azure Monitor, mm-hmm. another service. Mm-hmm. Now, this is not enabled by default, of course not, because it has always some performance overhead. But you can go to the Azure dashboard and just click on a button, say, hey, enable monitoring, and mm-hmm. boom, all of your JVMs will be monitored automatically. Mm-hmm. That's a great experience for developers who want to see what's going on but they don't want to waste time configuring JVMs and agents and whatnot. Mm-hmm. I actually used this AKS, this Azure Kubernetes service multiple times, and was it worked fine. It was actually almost identical to OpenShift or Kubernetes experience. It was uh, exactly the same for me. And um, what's uh, interesting, the, the container stuff, what I'm still curious, because what, what you could do is actually, you know, if you just had 
two containers and one HI proxy as a load balancer, this would be fine for a, a lots of applications. We have some you no know, mission critical applications which are running exactly in this way on premise on my clients. And I think you know for uh, it's not about scalability. It's more it's, it's more about HA. So I think with with two uh -huh. runtimes you can handle you know a, a huge load as several thousand transactions per second. The only problem is if if they would like to have failover. So I think there should uh -huh. be should be a way to do this because you can do it with stock Docker. If you have you know two Docker containers and and a Docker network, you can have another container. What you already mentioned as a load balancer. This could be HA proxy which sees both containers, and uh, you you are set. So I think it should be possible to deploy such a thing, right? Oh, it is. Um, so in the Kubernetes world, you can deploy... Not in Kubernetes. In I mean in container. Kubernetes, it is set. So it it worked out of the box. So in Kubernetes, we oh. had... In Kubernetes, we already did it. In Kubernetes, uh, you have the uh, the, the ingress... Uh, yeah, I forgot, I forgot actually... Ingress one. controllers. Yeah, yeah, ingress controllers, and it worked actually as expected. So it, you, have, you don't have to do yeah. anything. But in the container world, I didn't use the container service at, at Microsoft. So um, I set up container on, on my own service. And this was very, very easy. This was a hack. So we use HA proxy and via the container name, you had the networking. So I think uh, with a minor two. You could, yeah. you, it, is, it is possible. Uh, I, won't say, I won't say it's not possible. It is possible. Um, I'll, I'll just say that it might not be the best option here. Yeah, yeah, yeah I mean, get you. Mm -hmm. you. You can go to the VM to create VMs and deploy containers inside your VMs, but then you're ha you have to manage the VMs yourself. Yeah, yeah. So, so once you once you use HA proxy to do some uh, some of those tweaks and workarounds, now you're managing uh, yeah, HA you're proxy right. yeah. manually by yeah. yourself. Yeah. So, so that's why that's why Kubernetes is nice because you deploy the egress controller, and maybe it's a commercial product. Maybe it's something that is a defective standard or something that most people are already using and just works, but it's not something that, something that you have to manually manage. You just mm -hmm. set up once, mm -hmm. you set up the routes, and you're good to go. Are you also aware of the MicroProf I support? Because uh, as I remember, this Microsoft Asia has a dedicated page you know, about MicroProfile with the config and the stuff. Yeah, we. I'm not aware of these uh, new advancements in MicroProfile, but yes, we did create a few uh, documentation pages from MicroProfile um, to uh, to help a few customers, a few users that came to us and asked for it. Um, we haven't seen yet much of an uptake on 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 MicroProfile on Azure. I'm sure there is uh, uh, people doing it. Um, but we haven't actually heard from them directly. So that's why we haven't made much progress on that documentation page. But if you know uh, people using and deploying, and if there is anything missing, just let me know. We are happy to help. Mm -hmm. uh, for instance, yeah, uh, my clients, they're, they're using the, um, Azure. To, uh, and, and, okay. But, you know, if, you, if we ship a microprofile application to Asia, it's just a Java service. There is no... Right. You, you, no don't, so the... the there is actually no how to how to call it. There is no requirement for Asia to do something specific if you are running microprofile apps on Asia. What I saw, oh, uh, yeah. What I saw in the, in the in the Asia case, what you get out on top of the usual support, you can, for instance, inject credentials with microprofile. So, the, so there is the microprofile is used as a binding between the app and additional services from from Asia, which makes more interesting. So this is why probably it's a lesser known feature. 
because what usually my clients are doing, they are just you know, pushing microprofile stuff to Asia and, and it just works. And they don't even know that they couldn't even integrate more tightly using microprofile with Asia. Yeah, I think I think there is an opportunity to create those microprofile extensions, right? Yeah. The, um, the the bindings. So we have we have an example of uh, Azure Key Vault exactly. on on the documentation page, yeah. which which is quite handy. Mm -hmm. And I think more could be done. I'm sure there could be a, a plugin to uh, easily enable integration with Azure AD for security or um, Azure Storage or um, Azure uh, API management uh, for publishing, exposing the API endpoint uh, automatically. I mean, there are many things that could be done. Um, we, are, we are just not, honestly, we're just not being asked. People are not asking us, hey, can you do this? And if, I, if I nobody's think, asking. I think uh, there are two things were, which are crucial. And one is the credentials, and this comes later. Because uh, uh -huh. what you usually do in Kubernetes you can uh, ship uh, know, the deployment configuration and you can inject, for instance, username, passwords as secrets. But this is not secure because if someone uh -huh. has access to the pods, it sees the secrets. And then right. my clients ask, you know, what about injection? And then, you know, the, uh, the um, cloud integration kicks in because you can actually inject secrets in more secure way than Kubernetes can. This is this is the one thing. And this comes later. So at the beginning, no one asks about that because everyone is happy it runs in the cloud, you know? So, and yeah, then yeah. the next it's thing always, is... It's always like three months later when they realize, yeah, exactly. oh, we have to use security. And there's an act, uh, another killer feature, and I get more and more questions about that, is um, how to authenticate and how to get the JSON web token. So you have, you um, know, an uh, AD, uh, Active Directory or whatever you have at Microsoft. Yep. Yeah. And what is the flow? So you would like to log in, you know, get the username and password, and then you get the JSON web token, and then we are set, we are happy. But this first initial flow, this is always cloud-specific, yeah. I get lots of questions regarding sure. AWS Cognito and so on. This is what 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 comes to this. is nothing to do with MicroProfile, because in MicroProfile, if you have the JSON web token, you are happy, you know. But how to get uh -huh. the JSON web token? This is about the cloud. And I think these two killer, yeah. killer things has to be set. And this is at the beginning, again, doesn't matter because developers hack something, you know, they will pull the JSON web token from wherever, just behind the scenes. But if it's well integrated, and actually in the recent AirHacks TV, I think in two episodes, I got the same question regarding AWS, how to how to get the JSON web token from Amazon Cloud. And uh, you will get the question also as well in one point of time because uh, people know this AWS is a little bit older, so there are more apps, but uh, it will come to you as well. And, yeah, and the last um, one, last uh, one, what will happen to you, is comes, I think, at the end is, how do you know, um, so microprofile applications are exposing per default uh, Prometheus matrix? Uh -huh. And is there a, a way where the Prometheus, you know, finds these pods automatically, gathers the metrics and does something with it. So this is also, which usually comes later, you know, this, this is, that, therefore, I don't think you need to know microprofile support. What you need is like a, a, an interface between the cloud and, and additional uh, authentication, monitoring and, and the infrastructure or, or, or you no know, open tracing as well. Are you familiar? Are you familiar with the project OpenTelemetry? Yes. I mean, open. This is Kubernetes yeah. Foundation, and this is implemented by MicroProfile. So, Open Telemetry so, is, is the new one, and MicroProfile implements, for instance, um, open tracing, which was about the spans. Then the uh, monitoring is the the metrics, which was Prometheus, 
and um and i think open telemetry they they merged two specs right they merged the matrix so, and the and the and the open tracing one yeah I, i'm not familiar with the details of those open source projects what i do know is that um, azure mapping our monitoring solution already the java agent that i mentioned before that is injected automatically for mm -hmm. you that agent is based on open telemetry so whatever is running inside the jvm that is supported by OpenTelemetry will get exposed in the mm -hmm. App Insights dashboard, mm -hmm. the Application Insights dashboard. Mm -hmm. So that should also include, I'm sure it includes JAX-RS, for example. Yeah. So that if you if you have MicroProfile application using JAX-RS as your uh, REST um, um, framework, yeah. then it will get exposed on App Insights because of OpenTelemetry. This is fine. So we already have that capability in. What comes on top of it, just as an idea, um... This is also widely ignored uh, by developers at the very beginning of the application. But what you get are business metrics. Right. You know, how many books we we I don't know printed today, or you know how many fraud attempts right. were there, and uh, what what we are doing, we are just exposing counters, and they have nothing to do with Java. You get just you no know, counter sold books, you know, uh, payment processed, or I don't know. Uh, shopping does carts it, created. It, let me ask you this. Does it make sense to add those metrics in the application? It makes absolute sense because... Um, why why not, why not having... Instead of having the application pushing those data points just for monitoring purposes, why not having something pulling that data from the database? Ah, the application, it does... So th this is micro profile, but actually it's open telemetry or open metrics. So this is Cloud Native Foundation. And the idea is that a process has nothing to do even with Java, exposes some metrics, and they are gathered by Prometheus, which was standardized by the open metrics. So the Prometheus right. pulls the data, and Prometheus is the uh, time series database. Right, but 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 if Prometheus is pulling that data from the application, it means that the application needs to have some logic running. And if the application is Java, that logic is running yeah. inside the JVM to expose that data point. Yeah. My but, question no, is... No, there's my, no logic. My question is... This is microprofile. So what do you have no, to... No, well, when I, say, when I say logic is that there is some code running inside of the JVM to expose that data, whether yes. the user wrote it manually or not. Yeah. But right? what, do you have, point. what do you have to do? If, let's imagine you are in the in the uh, printing service of the books. So if the book is printed, you have to say registry dot counter ink done. There's one. No, no, fair, fair, fair. What a, what a, so I just want to pause for a second and, and debate whether that metric should be coming from the application or shouldn't it be coming from the database? Because yeah. here's the thing. Here's Some applications don't have an ad database, you know. There's always a database somewhere. Yeah. You but... order a book. You order a book. There is a message in Kafka or Cassandra or a record on the on the relational database somewhere. There is that information will be somewhere. My point with uh, I, I really want to debate this because I don't know the answer, and I don't see many people debating this. So I want to debate. Whatever metric that you put in your application for for fancy dashboards, oh, we have Prometheus, we have Grafana, it exposes how yeah. many people are currently 
looking at this particular book. I mean, that's great, but does it really help? And honestly, to have that monitoring, you have an overhead uh, on your JVM because you have extra code that is only good for you, not for the customer. It's only good for your observability, but it's not helping the customer, which means it is wasting CPU and memory from the JVM to serve more customers, to increase throughput, to reduce latency, to process more transactions, and to ultimately sell more books. So why are we adding that level of monitoring in the JVM, in Java applications, or in, in any application, if that information could be coming from elsewhere? Okay. The, um, the app, because it often cannot come from ours, uh, elsewhere. Um, in uh, what developers are doing, they are exposing technical metrics. How often the method was invoked, how fast it was, what was the average in no time, which is pointless. What I'm talking about is every, you know, let's say microservice, and we are build a microservice has some essential functionality. And every component with the essential functionality has to at least expose a counter whether something is working or not. And I give you an example. So in one project, there were uh, IoT devices which uh, sent data to a central service. And the uh, and developers just you know, exposed transactions per second. And no one actually knew what it means, transaction per second. And then we introduced metrics like you know how many such um, messages per seconds were processed because message was a business term and this changed everything. Uh -huh. We knew then from business perspective, you know, we are able to process, let's say, 100,000 uh, messages per second and the message was a term defined by the business and they said, okay, more than this, we have to scale or not and then we had a metric, you know, over time, an average and we saw, okay, if this changes in any direction, we know that there's something wrong with the system. Give you another example as a crucial system based on messaging. So um, I was actually in charge of, uh, of the architecture. So I from day one, we have to expose business metrics, but uh, the business metrics were, for instance, if we received a message and the message was of wrong type, we increase a counter. A message with wrong type arrived, no poisoned message. So if the message was processed, another counter. And what we did during the stress test phase, we just monitored the counters and stuff like Prometheus, it gathers the, the, the um, averages, this is the point. What you would like to have is average over time whether your system behaves correctly. And in my point, it is all, all, only possible with business metrics because, you know, how many transactions, rollbacks, this is too technical. This is really right. hard. Right. Like in car, you would like, you know, to see how fast your car goes and not, not you know, how, how warm the engine is. I don't care about that, you know. So well, this technically you shouldn't care because if it's going too high, it's going to blow up. But, yeah, but <laughs> not not my, my problem. Point, um, yeah, I'm not I'm not against I'm not against business metrics. I, you, you maybe you read that wrong. Uh, what I'm what I'm saying is, the certain metrics shouldn't be coming from the application. Sure. So messages. Let's let's take your example of of uh, transactions versus messages. Yeah. Transaction is something that is very technical. Maybe yeah. how many HTTP requests happened. Yeah. But one is one HTTP request does not translate to one business message. Maybe one business message actually translates to 15 HTTP requests. Exactly. Right? So, okay, I get that point. 
But that business message is still happening somewhere. Maybe it's going to Kafka. Maybe it's going to a queue. Maybe it's it's being recorded on the database. Maybe that business metric is also happening somewhere else in the system, not in the actual application that serves the end user. Mm -hmm. So if you are able to get that business metric from elsewhere asynchronously in a way that you can see the trend, but without impacting the performance of your application or, or, or uh, adding up complexity to your application, you're still good. You have, you have that business metric. Yeah. And once that business metric triggers some yellow red flag, then maybe you trigger something into your Java application, into your business application to say, hey, something is not right. Enable the agnostics. Yep. And let's figure out what's happening. And your, only at that time, your application will see like, okay, database is telling us or Kafka is telling us we are not serving enough business messages at the right performance. Yep. Let's enable diagnostics to see what's going on. Maybe it's the garbage collector that is uh, pausing for too long. Maybe it's the, the threads are queuing uh, uh, too much. Maybe the CPU is being eaten up by some, some other application inside a container. So let's figure that out. Yeah. But the most important thing here is business metrics shouldn't always have to come from inside the actual application serving the end user. No, no, they could be always. observed elsewhere. Yeah. This, what, I, what I'm saying is if we are exposing metrics in my Java applications, they are we starting with business metrics or nothing? Because I don't have, you know, to expose, uh, I absolutely don't care how many transactions we don't have, we have or not have, because it's pointless. So you mentioned Kafka, and Kafka is a trick, because if you have Kafka, you know, the, uh, the single truth of everything is in Kafka. This changes everything. Because in a Kafka project, what I can do, I can, for instance, apply statistics on a Kafka topic, sliding window, whatever, and I have, and I have my business uh, uh, statistics, but what I would do is, for instance, I would use Kafka streams, you know, uh, look to the topic and then expose the statistics via counters directly or gauges. Right. And then you could gather this statistic from Prometheus. So this is one possibility. But um, right. this is not all projects have Kafka right now. Okay. You, know, but you don't have to. Uh, Kafka is just an example. If you, let's say you have a basic application, like a, 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 an application and the database, right? Let's say Postgres. You can get your business metric by running constantly over uh, your table on on Postgres. Yeah, you're right. So, but prob probably what you would do is, you know, to to get you know the advantage of of the nice tools and 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 and, and uh, metrics that you will probably go, you know, to the database, expose the counter from the table as a gauge and expose as a Prometheus metrics. It's oh. just. Yes, 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 absolutely. You yeah. would you would expose that metric in your dashboard. What I'm saying is people are so I, I think developers are so uh eager to see those metrics and because developers have control over over the source code of yeah. the application, it's a lot easier for them to add that telemetry, that business telemetry yeah. into their application instead of trying to convince someone to add that telemetry to something else. Yeah, of course. So, no, no, do, do, so you, that's why. Yeah. 
to give to give you a story. So um, there was a Java user group meeting in Hamburg. This was like three years ago, I think, or four. And uh, you know, back then, Hystrix was a big thing. So everyone wanted to have Hystrix. And I said, okay, I, it's just pointless. Why I need you know pointless dashboards? And um, and they came to me and I said, okay, look, I'm I'm a consultant. So if I just create you know some dashboards with Hystrix. Everything looks more professional, so there's nothing actual to do for me. But there are no <laughs> nice diagrams, and I say, look, but what the diagrams are saying, you know? Because if you're just exposing garbage collector or whatever, you know how many methods were invoked, it looks nice, but it's pointless, you know. And and I say, it yeah, I know. yeah I know, yeah, I know. Has to be a yeah, but but they say, but there my, has to be a correlation. Yeah, but my clients expect some dashboards. It's okay. To, I mean, okay, then build something. And uh, on that note, I was uh, in a task force in a project and. Um, they, are, they said, okay, we, we are not sure what the system is doing. So, okay, then we need uh, some monitoring. Say, so, no, we have a lots of dashboards, you know, but we have no idea what's going on. And I was in the war room and the main dashboard, you know, was, you know what it was? It was a garbage collector. And they look at the, at the garbage collector behavior and they ask me, does it look right? I was like, I have no idea. No, I mean, I mean, uh, you know, if the over time, if, you know, it looks right. Yeah, if the, it's yeah, look, if yeah, it looks right, it's it, doing the garbage collection. It, it looks it right. Looks, it looks pretty, you know. <laughs> over time, if if it's flat, it it is okay, but it's absolutely pointless. And they asked me, "What do you would like to see?" I was like, "At least I would like to see, you know, the successful use cases and not successful use cases. This is what I will start with. So, how many, how how many things happened right and not right?" And they say. You are genius, you know how how to come up with this idea because I, I answered because I have no idea what the system is doing, and what you said with the database, you are right. But what you shouldn't forget, we are in the middle of transition. Some some in microservice architectures, we have often you know microservice database, microservice database. We have a lots of databases in one application. This can happen, and then it is harder to you find. Deploy. Yeah. Well, you deploy you deploy those monitoring components within the database. Every time you spin up a database, you make sure that that database has a component that exposes counters to your dashboard. In yeah. the same way that you do with applications. Yeah. No big deal. Yeah, you could do it. Yeah. I think. I think. I think. I think. Uh, um, yeah, passionate. Think uh, are... Passionate about monitoring. So, I some uh, you know, uh, do, you, do, do you are working on monitoring right now? We are we are doing some work in monitoring. Ah, yes. okay. This uh, is why you are uh, so passionate about the topic. You know. You know, because because the more I read about, the more I'm concerned that people are not monitoring the right way. And you are totally right. People are monitoring the things that don't matter. That's that's I think the lesson number one. Monitor what matters. Yeah. And monitoring monitoring how much memory your code is using. Yeah, that's that's nice to have. But unless you know what your code is doing, <laughs> does it matter? How much memory is using it? Maybe it's using that many. That maybe your application is using that much memory because it has to, right? The, the coolest, the coolest. <laughs> because it needs the coolest health check I ever saw. It was like two years ago in 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 a code review. There was a health check, and they checked, you know, the size of the hard so, disk of the hard disk, and this was in the cloud. <laughs> and I and I asked myself, why hard disk? Do you have any hard disk? Or what's the point? We don't. I, and there was not even no not even a file access. There was just, and they say, yeah, they found it somewhere, and they thought it's a good idea to check whether they have enough space, you know, to run the application. It's like, you, look, we are in Kubernetes, we have not even, you know, persistent volume, nothing, and they say, okay, then they delete it. But they started, you know, with something to see, and um, this was really funny. But uh, the problem is agile a little bit, or not agile? Um, how to call it these days? Scrum. If you uh -huh. look at, at Scrum project, 
So the uh, there is a Scrum Master. So the Scrum Master only cares about the process. The product manager, the product manager does not doesn't know nothing about metrics. It doesn't care. So he has the user stories and the user stories are business driven. And the developers, this is the idea, the developers should actually provide a monitoring thing. But the developers in some companies, there's not like you know one internal team. There are developers from all over the place, and they are really happy that in at the end something will run, you know. And whether there are monitoring stuff or not, no one cares at all. And because the expectation is, you know, in, in cloud native that we get the funky diagrams, then what they do is at the end they use the micro profile counted or timed, and all methods are counted or timed, and everything is exposed, but nothing meaningful. And um, after, you know, one year in production and something goes south, then we delete all the metrics and expose meaningful metrics. And what I think what you should start with is just simple counters, you know, very simple counters. And and in my opinion, you should do this, you know, from the day one. Why? To have some experience, to gather experience, uh, what it actually means. You know, how... how yeah. How may what, what the numbers are meaning in the production? Because if they escalate in production in in any direction, we can have automatic alerts. There is the, there is a you are right. We should, applications should go live with some metrics. Yeah. They, but they should be, in my opinion, they should be as minimal as possible yes. and as meaningful as possible. Yes. Absolutely. So, so you said meaningful, but. Minimum but meaningful metrics. Yes. So, um, uh, what does your application do? What is the core business of your application? Oh, my application gets an image that the customer uploads and then stores in the database. That's what my microservice does. That's the only thing that my microservice, yeah. microservice does. Okay, fine. So, you record one business metric images stored in the database Ex per second. Perfect. That's it. That's or, or, it. or just count how many are stored, you know, because per second this can happen in more Prometheus later. Just just increase the number. Yes. Of, yeah. Yes, correct. But now here comes the catch. Where who reports that metric? Is it the application or is it the database? Um. For me, as an uh, application developer, if I'm, I'm I have to write the Java code, right? And what I would just do, I wouldn't write it to a database, I would just increase the counter in the application because this is what I did. And if I don't have the database, I would have Kafka that would just write the message out. But I would say from my perspective, you know, I am the app, I just did it. And this is and this is already helpful. And in the database, this is more like, I would say not how to call it, not uh, KPIs almost, you know, this is like the... Yeah, but but yeah. what if what if you scale, what if you scale this microservice to multiple instances? Now that you is... have two applications with different counters. Yeah. If we, let's say we have four microservices, which uh, for instances of the same microservice, they are scaled. So right. Like, yeah. Um, then it's just interesting to know whether the load balancing system even is working, you know. So if you... If you if you gather all the counters from four instances, you will see you know whether the counter is even in wh whether the load is 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 evenly spread across all the instances. That could also be gathered from the database inside the database. You could have the microservice instance ID that created that record. You why, can get that from the database. Why you don't like the, the idea you know to of of, of 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 because it wastes it wastes resources. Okay. Now your JVM has to manage a counter, an object in memory 
just for showing the counter that is not even used by the user. The user doesn't see that counter. The, the, the application is managing uh, something that is completely internal. That's your point, okay. Okay. In our cases, it doesn't show the, the, the implications, but the more telemetry you add, the more business metrics you add to your application, if, if that thing could not be done elsewhere, that's fine. That's okay. For example, if, the, if you don't have Kafka or if your database is weird and there's no other way, sure, put that in your, in your, in your application. But if there is a way to get that business metric in another, in another place, do it. Because what you want is your application to be 100% dedicated for serving your users. You yeah. don't want... You don't want performance overhead. You don't want to consume memory. Imagine, okay, let's let's take this stupid example of image uploader, right? Let's say you have to scale from one image in, uh, uploader service instance to a thousand. Yeah. And let's just imagine that to do all this telemetry of that business metric of how many images are being uploaded, let's say that this adds up one megabyte of memory just to manage this thing because of class path dependencies and your business code and your whatever happen, happens uh, within your code. Now you have one gigabyte of memory being consumed just to expose a counter. And one gigabyte of memory sounds cheap in cloud days, but you multiply that across thousand different other services that have similar metric. Now you're wasting 100 gigabytes of memory per month and you're paying for that. Yeah, so but what you could what, you, what, yeah, I, you could we, extract that metric from the database or from Kafka or from somewhere else. But Why if you are do you it, wasting memory on but that? But if you do it from database, I think it will be more expensive than just increasing account in Java, because in Java, really, the metric is just a hash map with one slot. We it depends. It, it depends on the database. It depends on the database. Make sure you use a good database. That's all. And, and make sure you write a good code in the database. Yeah, you but, have you have opti you have optimistic locking. You have. You have uh, read-only tables. Yeah, yeah, but if, if you, but, if, but if you're writing the code in Java, it would be larger than just, you know, hash map increase counter, you know? If you're writing the code in a database, so there is, would be a way to say from outside, you know, like you have augmented database, which you say, look at the table and expose the counter. This would be probably different, but I don't, yeah, this, this could be different because in one database... I'm just, uh you know, it's an interesting discussion, but uh, yeah, and uh, yeah, I'm just uh, again, this is a this is a stupid example. Yeah. Uh, just trying to uh, escalate the, the 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 use case here to see the bigger picture, right? There will be, there will be no escalation. Um, the first escalation was YAML, so uh, now I know how you how, how you are, <laughs> how you are thinking. So don't don't expect any escalate, uh, escalation. I just, with again, me. I I truly want I truly want to see customers spending less cloud resources in, in, in their applications. I mean, if your application can run with 100 megabytes of memory, then run with 100 megabytes of memory. Yeah. Don't add meaningless, wasteful monitoring to your application, which will increase to 200 megabytes of memory. Sure, that's good. You know, we get more revenue, but it's bad for the customer because now they cannot deploy new applications because all their budget is being wasted on, on, on meaningless metrics. Yeah, that could be extracted elsewhere. That's uh, my point. Back to the metrics. So what um, my best practice currently is: so if you have a microservice, let's let's say image upload service, and uh, you would have upload and download one microservice to save memory. 
<laughs> right? So then you yeah. would have one image management service. And inside the image, there would be two packages. And the packages, one is upload and one download with business names. So this is how to structure mm -hmm. the code. So what I would expect, because you have already two business packages, that every of the package has one counter. And whether the counter comes from database or not, I, don't, I also don't care. Currently, this is micro profile code. So this is how what I will do. And uh, this metrics are essential and anything else is optional. So uh, I don't care about memory and transactions and whatever. I just would like to see whether the application... Sure. Op yeah. So no. So this is th that's all. And uh, yeah, interesting point with the database. I, I'm, yeah, this, we should you know. I mean, people who are using Kafka, they use Kafka to those metrics, to get those metrics. Yeah. Right? Yes. Most 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 architectures that have Kafka as part of the solution, they they get all the metrics from Kafka streaming. Yeah. They they do their KS uh, KSQL the, the Kafka queries. They bombard Kafka because everything is not nice and on memory from there, right? But yeah. the, the important thing here in the Kafka case is all those metrics. They are not in the application, which means your application is 100% dedicated for processing user input, yeah. for processing data, processing system, whatever. Okay. And you you got you don't get garbage collection triggered because of your all those metrics. You don't get uh, long GC GC pauses that uh, are cleaning up objects from your telemetry that would impact your business application. You and get so on. you get them because uh, in Kafka, in order to do so you will have to deploy a Kafka stream application, which is a Java process bot. Um, the difference is the uh, Kafka metrics, let's say we have messages. Yeah, you go running and you're, you run somewhere, right? So you're emitting messages. And I would like to see, you know, how many such messages per second are emitted. So what you could right. do, you would, you would create a Kafka stream application with a sliding window and the statistic you get as a Java stream. This is, you get an integer. Right. But the right. difference is probably... It is also relevant to the user. This was your point. So in a Kafka applications, most of the metrics are also relevant, you know, for both for operations and for users. Right. You know, and the microprofile metrics, they uh, at the beginning, no one is interested in it, and in one point of time, we actually sometimes expose it to the users, like a progress bar. What the application is doing, it, it depends on the application, of course, right? Yeah. Back yeah. to the back to the memory. It, it's it's all about it's 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 all about the use case. Yeah. Back to the uh, memory uh, consumption. Um, I played with Quarkus, um, and what's really stunning is, so a, a Quarkus application with entire microprofile is, is smaller than empty Tomcat or Jetty. This is crazy. So this is uh, this is. Well, are you are you talking about are you talking about the uh, Quarkus running on a regular JVM or a regular Quarkus JVM running as a native on, on on Zulu, OpenJDK, or whatever, and. Uh, okay. uh, this is interesting. So if you're really concerned about, you know, memory and, and if you compare Quarkus to any other runtime, uh, whether it's Whitefly or, or Payara or whatever, or Tomcat, right. it, it is usually a half. So you can, you can save a half of RAM just running on, on, on JVM. So this was uh, right. this interesting. And if you run it on Graal, then it's crazy. So if you, if you translate to Graal, there's no more Java, but uh, it is like you will need 10 megs. So for Hello World servers with all microservices. Right. I mean, with Matrix included, open API and everything there, right? And on JVM from outside, 80 megs. Everything. Right. But is it is it 80 megs 
is it ADMX just like up and running at the beginning or after processing hundreds, thousands, millions of requests? Yeah, after processing thousands, millions or billions of requests, I mean, it really depends whether you are caching or not, right? So just processing, no, no problem. So, and uh, why that? Because there is no reflection, no dynamic behavior at the beginning. That's an interesting point. So they, you know, yeah. they, they, they optimize everything at build time. And when you are starting, you have one flat class loader with uh, everything hardwired, and this is crazy fast. So if you are concerned about memory and your clients, you know, Quarkus is probably the solution. So then we can emit a lots of metrics, you know, with MicroProfile. <laughs> and the you are metrics, happy. The more metrics, the better, right? Yeah, yes. Yeah. Then, I mean, and I mean, you again, are happy. Again. You are happy. Microsoft, you know, revenue will go down. Your, your clients are happier, and uh, I can have my metrics, you know. And, and don't have I, to fiddle with your databases. <laughs> <laughs> so, so memory is just one aspect. Just yeah. to be clear, memory is just one aspect. So, one of the problems that uh, sometimes happen with uh, um, ex exaggerated monitoring is uh, garbage collection, right? Yeah. When when you have an in, when you have an agent monitoring your JVM. That agent is processing things, is creating objects, and you're putting things on memory, and so on and so forth. So the more allocation of objects that happen, the more the garbage collection has to clean yeah. up later. Yeah. And the garbage collector doesn't distinct the objects that are for monitoring and the objects that are for user business no, right. processing. Yeah. So when a garbage collector has to pause the JVM to clean up that mess, both monitoring and user uh, business code will get impacted and it will be paused for a few milliseconds. So the more GC pause that happens and the longer the GC pause happens, the worse it is for throughput and latency of your of your uh, Yeah, but 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 you are talking about people have to be conscious about how much Yeah, but you are talking about uh, you know almost profiling or tracing very low level profiling. And my metric stuff is more like, you know, just having a view counters. I don't think they have seriously any impact. Oh, yeah, yeah. In I, garbage collection. When, this, is when like, you, this is like, you know. When you put it that way, yeah. when you put it that way, yes. It's, when you put it that way, yes. It's simple. It's just a counter. It's just a business, a little business metric. And, uh, or of course. But I, what I'm saying is I'm just raising the, I'm just trying to raise awareness that people should be uh, conscious of how much, metrics and what kind of metrics they are putting into their code. Yeah. And they should, of course, configure the application with YAML. Uh, absolutely. The more YAML, the better. The better. Uh, it, it, yeah, because the more YAML you put into your application, the longer it takes to be deployed. Yeah. And you have time. You every know, time to... you deploy, yeah. you forgot something. Yeah, and if it takes longer, then you have no time to think about metrics and, and monitoring and uh, memory consumption. Exactly, exactly. You have to slow things down. Don't go to production too fast. Yeah. Use YAML. <laughs> this is cool. This is a perfect, you know, this is the closing words from, uh, from, from chief Java champions and principal product manager for Java at Microsoft. <laughs> I mean, we are we are we are in pandemic times. Everything has been slowed down, so we have time to write the M, and we have time to fix actual code. That's good. Good for everybody. Cool. <laughs> but now your t title right now it is 
comparable to uh, at Sun times, who would be the person at Sun who is principal product manager for Java? This is uh, actually... Um, really um, I don't, I don't know. I mean, principal pro, principal product manager is, uh, it's a very common title. We have thousands ah. of people with, oh, okay. with that thought, title at Microsoft. It's not, it's not a big thing. No, no, no. I thought it was, I thought it was something like a singleton. There's only one no, no, principal product no, manager no. and there's Bruno Borges, you know? No, no. no. And we he loves other, YAML. We, <laughs> that I do. <laughs> we have, we have other great people at Microsoft. We have, so to, to be clear, Microsoft is probably the company with the, the highest number of Java champions fully employed. Uh, Microsoft has today something like 11 or 12 Java champions um, uh, working here. Cool. And we have, um, we have distinguished engineers. We have, Wait a second. Uh, Just because Oracle cannot employ any Java, Java champions, right? Because the Oracle employees cannot be Java Well, uh, yeah. In, in, <laughs> you, you see? Hey, I was at Oracle before, so. But you were not Java champion then, right? I was. I was not. I was not because I was Oracle employee. Yeah, you never see. Be, you uh, see. Uh, yeah. Anyways, uh, so we do have lots of Java champions. Um, we have uh, we have a few employees. We have a few folks working at Microsoft that Java developers might recall. Do you remember the Gengo Four book? Yeah. Design patterns. Yeah. You know Eric Gama, right? Yeah. Eric Gamma works at Microsoft. And the other, there was a guy who uh, actually quit Sun and joined Microsoft very early, but he is still active in JVM. And uh, he was on the old JVM summit, a really nice guy. He's also on, on Microsoft for, for ages. So it was before, you know, the whole Asia Asia movement. So I have to think, and he's still active in JVM. I think he's he worked on C Sharp or whatever and still works on, uh, yeah, there, there are lots of people at Microsoft. So, um, and I yeah, use right. Visual Studio. So Visual Studio Code all the time, actually. And I send you a link to a screencast, my screencast with Quarkus comparing the memory consumption to Tomcat. So I did it because I get lots of requests for memory, you know. Everyone asked me about memory. Did, did, you know, did you know that you could run your webcast using a live share session that people can go into the browser and log in into your VS Code session and see you coding? Not through video, but actually the IDE in the browser. You could do that. Live sharing. This is the live sharing feature, or is it a service from the, from from Asia? With live share. Live share. No, no, no. You don't. You, you don't have to. You don't have to have a Microsoft account, or Azure account, nothing. Just install the extension. Uh, uh, I'll, I'll send you the link later. But okay. it's live share. Visual visual uh, visual live share, something like that. Mm -hmm. And you can you can start a session. You go to the extension and VS Code. You start a session, and you get a URL. Mm -hmm. And you send to people that you want to, let's say, pair program. Okay. And these and the other doesn't have installed. They just go to the browser, and Visual Studio Code will load inside the browser. And uh, you can also have a read-only live share session that people will see you coding. You don't. They won't be able to cool. touch. They will just see. I only know the live so share it's, that it's, you have. To, you have to have pair programming between Visual Studio Code. The thing with the browser is nice. Yeah, yeah. The thing with the browser is very nice. So, um, where people can find um, you? Where people can find me? Well, on Twitter for sure. Uh, it's at Bruno Borges. Uh, I'm also on Reddit. Uh, I, I post some comments on Reddit from time to time, and usually on the Java subreddit. My username is Bruno C. Borges. There's okay. just a C in, in the middle. And uh, on LinkedIn, just search for uh, Bruno Borges, Java, Microsoft. You're going to find me as well. Happy to. Uh, 
take messages and comments and whatnot. Um, I don't blog much, but when I do, I usually publish to Medium. So okay. it's medium.com slash at Bruno Borges. And there's a recent article that I posted about managing multiple JDKs that got some quite attention from Java developers because these days developers have to have at least two JDKs installed, one yes. Java 8, one Java 11, and it, it's becoming a mess to manage all these JDKs. So that article has some nice tips and tricks and tools. Send me the link. I will publish on the show notes. It's an interesting one. Yeah, yeah sounds absolutely. good. I'll, mm -hmm. send you, I'll send you over. Mm -hmm. And uh, yeah, and uh, if people are deploying Java on, on Azure or using Java with Visual Studio Code and they have feedback, I'm happy to take that on my email. It's bruno.borges at microsoft.com. Just send me whatever whatever people are feeling like, oh, this it's, it can be just, just, you know, a thanks. Hey, this works great, thanks. Okay. Or, hey, this is crap, doesn't work, and tell me why, and then we'll see how we can fix cool. it. And is there any way for developers, you know, to start easy on, on Asia? So, like, you know, they just... Azure.com, Azure yeah, go to azure.com slash free, get a free account, and start playing with Java on Azure App Service. Okay. There is a free tier, and you can deploy, I think, up to 10 applications for free cool. uh, for an entire year. Okay. So it's quite, it's quite nice. Cool. Then thank you and see you next time. See you. Thank you, Adam. Have a great day, man. Cheers.